Well, there is no one in his right mind who would randomly choose this passage to preach. When you preach through a book, you preach what comes next. And uh, chapter 14 follows chapter 13 and comes before 15. And so it's next. And therefore, here we are with uh, a scripture that in and of itself uh, does what uh, I teach when I teach preaching. Every uh, preaching class, uh, preachers have to do when they get up, create tension and resolve it by the end of the sermon. Well, tension has been created, and we'll see if we can resolve it. I want to do an experiment this morning, and so it begins now. That was exactly one minute of silence. Some of you parents of preschoolers fell asleep (laughs) because that's the only time you have silence. Awkward? Yes. We live in a loud world. There is an old Swedish saying that says, speech is silvern and silence is golden. Speech is silvern or of silver And silence is golden or of gold. It is interesting that the end of this passage that references women and speaking in church was read by a woman this morning. Uh, But it's interesting that that passage uh, has been lifted out of its context. And so I want to share with you a couple of rules at looking at Scripture this morning. And uh, the number one rule is that uh, the three most important rules are context, context, and context. You have to look and see what's there. And in my Old Testament class, or New Testament, one of the two, we talk about three kinds of context. An immediate context, uh, a historical context, and a remote context. And And so this passage is all about silence. If you go back and listen to it now with that in mind, you will discover that silence is recommended in three situations. Silence is golden, interestingly enough, when speaking in tongues. Silence is golden when speaking in tongues, and it seems strange to say that silence would be golden when uh, there is a process of speaking, but it is. 
Silence is golden. We're prophesying, and prophesying requires opening the mouth. So how can silence be golden in prophesying? But it is, according to Paul in this letter. And third, silence is golden when being married. It is. Uh, uh, There are times to talk and there are times not to, and we'll look at that this morning. Uh, Paul says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Commentators say the way this is listed, it appears that people are vying for a space on the stage Let me share my hymn. I want to share my song. I want to share uh, this speaking in tongues or an interpretation. I have a lesson to teach. I have a revelation from God. And there's no order in the worship. And all these people are storming the stage because they want to do something. The way it's listed suggests that. And so Paul says, again, as we saw last week, let all things in the church be done, especially in worship, for building up this word that occurs now. This is the fifth time in chapter 14. Let all things be done for building up. And so it means that worship is uh, a lifting up of Christ and a building up of one another. That you come into this place if you know Christ to be built up and if you don't know Christ to be introduced to him, worship is both vertical and horizontal. So it means that we don't storm the stage to sing our favorite song so that we can walk out and get patted on the back and somebody say, good job. It isn't for that reason. It is that we may build up one another. And so he says, when you come together, let all things be done for building up. And then he gives qualifications for speaking in tongues Some of you have never been a part of that, never seen it, others have. Here are the biblical qualifications. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there be no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. All right, so I uh, was made privy to uh, a, a website of a church here in North Carolina uh, where it is a frenzy. It is a mad frenzy. They have videos of their worship services. I went to check out the videos, and when I did, the, the place is bizarre. Uh, As people begin to speak in tongues and do various things, they appear to be completely out of control. They have lost total control of themselves. And everything you watch on that video of this church defies what is written in 1 Corinthians. Notice the qualifications for how tongues must be spoken. Uh, No more than three, spoken in turn, and there must be an interpreter. If you read this for what it's worth, and that's what you have to do, in order to speak in tongues, it requires that there be an interpreter present. And so the question is this. 
Who is that person and how do they know that there's someone in the room who can interpret? Well, if you go back a couple of chapters, and that would be immediate, maybe remote context, you'll discover when you go back a couple of chapters that there are folks who have the gift of interpretation. So some have the gift of speaking in a tongue, others have the gift of interpretation. So either when you come into that environment, somebody looks around and says, okay, there's somebody here with the gift of interpretation, or or you don't speak, you're silent. Now this word silent is a strong word, it means not a word. If we were going to be kind of on the low end that teachers never allow, it's shut up. All right? It's, it's not a word. If you look around and an interpreter isn't present, there is no speaking in tongues. What does this mean? It means that when folks speak in tongues, they are in control of themselves. This is not where some power comes over somebody. Somebody has no control of themselves. And in losing control, they make these noises that are, uh, are, are strange or they are uh, uh, unorthodox. Uh, it isn't that. It is a controlled speaking uh, that is interpreted and thereby its interpretation makes sense to others. Every single time. If it isn't that, it violates scripture. It is unbiblical. It is ungodly and should not be tolerated. So it means that often, if you uh, are familiar with harvest churches, Greg Laurie, Skip Heitzig, those churches are by their definition charismatic. In those churches, if you wish to speak in tongues then you must arrange it ahead of time. There must be a meeting. So it's arranged ahead of time. There's a meeting. You come together and arrange that. And then you go from there and it's incorporated then into the worship service. Why do they do that? 1 Corinthians 14. In other words, silence is golden when speaking in tongues. We learned last week and the week before, it confuses unbelievers. It throws people off. Some of you here are brand new to church and you're saying, I've never heard of this in my life. And it seems strange. It confuses unbelievers. And the way for it not to confuse unbelievers, Paul makes clear, is to do it decently and in order. And so by definition, uh, uh, there must always be interpretation. Silence is also golden when prophesying. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. This is interesting. It shows that preachers and teachers are not infallible. We will make mistakes we will say things that aren't right. You shouldn't come in here uh, like a hog at a, a slop trough. That shows I grew up in Tennessee, uh, raising hogs. But uh, you shouldn't come in here and I just throw some slop in the trough and you lap it up and never ask a question about it. Uh, I will make mistakes. I remember being in the church I attended in Columbia, South Carolina, grad school, when I first began to grow in my walk with the Lord. I, I, I had uh, grown up, got saved when I was 15. Nobody ever discipled me. And so I floundered for, for years. 
And so I'm 23 at the time, 24, and I attended a church pastored by a rather astute man. He was Dr. Lincoln to us. That's what we called him. He looked like Abraham Lincoln in his stature. He was tall, he was thin, and he was smart. And he wore bow ties, which made him look smarter in my opinion. But Dr. Lincoln was his name. And uh, the church was booming. I attended the third of three services in the morning. The church was booming. It was a a growing church. And I remember uh, he was preaching from the book of Acts. He preached on the selection of the deacons in the book of Acts. uh, That, uh, or the the apostle, that uh, 12th apostle to replace Judas. I still remember this. And he talked about how they just uh, really basically drew straws to do it. He talked about a role of the dice it was rather flippant the way he said it and so it was done and he preached and it was over and the next Sunday I will never forget this Dr. Lincoln came into the pulpit and when he did he said I have a correction to make from last week's sermon and everybody just sat up straight well, at, uh, at Shandon Church in Columbia, there's quite a crew of Columbia International University professors. And these guys are brilliant. And gals, they're brilliant. And so one of them had clarified to Dr. Lincoln that while he spoke of the choice of the apostle as a roll of the dice or a drawing of the straw, he said, uh, they said that never happened again in the New Testament. And not to confuse or lead people to think that choosing Choosing leaders in the church was that flippant, and Dr. Lincoln came to three services and apologized to three different groups of people for being somewhat misleading. I've never forgotten that. You see, what those professors did is exactly uh, what uh, is mentioned here. When you uh, uh, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. It's so important that you think through and you wrestle with issues and grapple with things. In the last uh, four weeks, I've had folks, because of the proliferation of all kinds of teaching on the internet, come in and meet with me and ask me questions that would boggle your mind. Uh, one person came in and completely and totally embraces the idea that the Nephilim in chapter 6 of Genesis, they get about this much attention in the Bible, that the Nephilim somehow ended up in Ohio. Okay, Ohio, I mean, strange people come out of that place. Just kidding. All right, uh, but, uh, but the, the Nephilim, the ne- we have several Ohio, they're just shaking their heads. All right, so, so the Nephilim somehow ended up in Ohio. They found uh, uh, skulls of them that are larger than life because they were giants. They found skulls, and they're still uh, able to be channeled in through uh, an alien-like activity, and there's a ministry that's completely built around that. Or the guy who came in who was just ardent about uh, letting me know all of these different things that were going on around the world and how they're connected, etc., etc., etc. It was conspiracy theory all over the place, all over the place, down to the point of, of saying that, that TV hypnotizes people, like straight up hypnotizes them. 
And he had even recorded his daughter watching a video or watching television and he spoke to her and she didn't respond. And he said, see, and I thought every woman in this place could do that with her husband. I mean, just throw up the iPhone when he's watching TV, yell at him, tell him the house is burning. He won't know. He's watching television. That says little about TV and a lot about human nature. But see, there are these things that abound, and so things must be tested. Uh, the internet forces the testing of things that you hear. Last night, I sat in a baseball game, a tourist game, Cameron Bowles, who Montreat grad who used to come here, met us over there. Cameron was late. I said, why are you late? He said, sat down with the guy, and he said, I want you to read these verses. Cameron grabs his phone out at the, at the game. We go to Revelation. I read these verses about the four corners of the earth. We go to 1 Samuel 7. I read some verses over there, and he says, this guy says, the earth is flat. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. He believes the earth is flat based on scripture. I said, has he ever been to science class? He said, I tried to tell him. But he honestly straight up believes the earth is flat. He's been through all of this internet. I mean, if it's on the internet, it's true. Right? And so everything must be tested. That's the point is that we must test. You can't just watch television. You can't watch the internet. You just can't believe anything you hear, anything you see. It just doesn't work that way. It says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. What does that mean? It means Fox News and CNN will get fired. Right? You can't listen for all of them yapping over each other. It says, uh, one speaks, and then another speaks, and then another speaks. What does this show us? Evidently, worship in Corinth had become a free-for-all. It's, it's like the, the ugly talent show. You know, I got a word. I got a better word. All right? And so I got a song. I can sing better than that one. Anything you can do, I can do better. I mean, it's this, all of this kind of stuff. It says, for you can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. I want you to notice something here in all of this. Don't miss, we have a subtle, but not so subtle maybe, definition of what preaching is about. Uh, you should learn something here. Your mind, your mind should be engaged. You should learn something every Sunday. Your mind should be engaged so that all may learn. Number two, that all may be encouraged. Your heart should be engaged. Did you notice that? Here is the mind and and the emotions. That you may learn something engages the mind, taking notes or making mental notes, whatever it may be, and the heart, being encouraged by what you hear, something that happens that affects a change on the inside. I love verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. What does that mean? It means that when I speak on a Sunday morning, I just don't open my mouth and hope that God moves and good things come out, that my spirit inside is subject to me. It means that I'm in control of myself as I'm speaking, that I don't step down from here and wonder what I said. That this isn't some kind of experience where I, I'm waiting on the unction to move. And when the unction moves, I speak and everybody goes, wow, where did that come from? No. 
It is a, an articulate working of the Spirit and the discipline of study that brings it together so it makes sense to the hearer. That's the call on every preacher. That's the call on every Bible fellowship leader. Do your homework. Study at home. Get prepared. Do the work of studying before you get into the pulpit or before you plan to teach. So silence is golden when speaking in tongues. And silence is golden when prophesying only one at a time. Others weigh what is said. But silence is golden when being married Silence is golden when being married. Verse 34 is in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but but should be in submission as the law also says. All right, this is a hefty statement. If, if we didn't have the reality of silence encouraged in speaking in tongues and silence encouraged in the prophesying experience, this would appear to be just bigotry. It would appear to be New Testament bigotry gone amok. But it's in the context of what comes before immediately and what comes after immediately. Check it out. Uh, First of all, I would say that Paul appears to contradict himself because in 11.5 he says, But every wife who prays or prophesies... So in 11.5, he says that women are praying and women are speaking. So we know that women pray, prayed in the Corinthian church, that women spoke in the Corinthian church. So to say then that women shouldn't speak always at all times would contradict what Paul has already said. And we know scripture doesn't contradict itself. If there are uh, uh, contradictions in scripture, they're apparent, meaning they're not obvious, the, the, the solution to us. So what does Paul mean? Well, uh, you must read what follows. Uh, Verse 35, if there's anything they, uh, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. For if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. There are a couple of things that give us insight into why this is so important. and, And why our understanding of it is critical. Is it shameful for a woman always to speak in church? No. No, if we truly believe that, then Margaret would not have read Scripture this morning. Uh, There are multiple ways that women speak and teach and lead here that wouldn't happen. So, So what is Paul talking about? Is it shameful for a woman to speak in church? There are a couple of things. This is in the context of marriage. So immediately single women are ruled out in this. I mean, if you just read it, there's no mention of single women. Uh, this is in the context of marriage. Uh, he immediately moves to, to a context of marriage and says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. So this has to do with wives and husbands. What is Paul talking about? Well, evidently, here's how church went down. So people would come together, the pastor would preach, or somebody would get up to prophesy, and maybe another person, another person, and the people right there would weigh it out. They were like, well, I'm not sure. You see, this is a church meeting in a home. This is not a church meeting in a building like this with hundreds of people. Max, you may have 20 or 30 people. This is more like a group conversation. And in this group conversation, a person is prophesying. And as the person is prophesying and speaking what uh, he believes the word of God means, uh, uh, somebody speaks up. 
And evidently, we're at free-for-all again. Why? Because a husband would say, speak up and say, well, I think this is what it means. And when he would finish, his wife would speak up. And evidently, she disagreed with him. And from the context, it appears that an all-out argument ensued in front of everybody. Now, I would say that that is bad then and that is bad now. No one. If you want to be in an awkward situation, find yourself in a room where a man and his wife are going at it. That's awkward. Nobody wants to be part of that. And then there is this other reality. Emerson Egrich has written a book called Love and Respect, a great read. And in his book, he bases it on some university-based research that, uh, before he goes to Ephesians 5, uh, that talks about how women are to respect their husbands and wives are, uh, uh, or husbands are to love their wives. And he says in that book, it's a fascinating thing, that men were surveyed, and if they were given the choice... If they were given the choice for their wife to love them or for their wife to respect them, 80-some percent of the time, men say, respect. I want to be respected. If I have a choice between love and respect, 80-some percent of the time, I'll choose respect. Wives want to be loved. So wives, one of the worst things you can ever do as a wife is to embarrass your husband in front of others by talking down to him or about him. As a matter of fact, when I do premarital counseling, I say to couples, we talk about their couple friends, and I say, if you have couple friends, and when you're around them, all they do is badmouth one another, create some serious distance between you and them, because what's happening publicly is just a microcosm of what's happened privately. What's happening in front of others is just a sliver of what's happening behind closed doors. And it's like poison. It's interesting that Paul doesn't use the word sinful. He uses the word shameful. It is shameful. Embarrassing is that word. He says it isn't sinful for a woman to speak. It's shameful for a woman to argue down her husband in front of others. It is. It's not the point in this passage. It's equally shameful for a man not to love his wife. If wives want love, it's interesting in Ephesians 5 that the command is unconditional on both sides. Women are to unconditionally respect their husbands, and husbands are to unconditionally love their wives. Why is that? It comes not very natural for many men to love. 
And it comes according to Genesis 3. I think that's when Paul talks about the law here, that the curse put uh, women in this position of feeling like they're frustrated constantly with authority and submission. It's just not natural to respect. It's hard. It's really hard. So, so what this does not do away with, what some women struggle with, is the issue of submission, which is clear in Scripture. It's not the message for today, but it's clear in Scripture. And it's not subordination. It's submission. It happens all the time in work. It happens in any organization. There's leadership and there's submission. And it's right. That's the way organizations work and the way families work and the way God designed it according to Scripture. That is the way. But here in this context, it doesn't say women aren't to speak in church. That would conflict what Paul has already said. So silence is golden when being married. At times, it's better to be quiet. Last night at the ball game, Wendy worked Friday she worked 14 and a half hours, my wife. Yesterday, she was on hour 14 when she was walking out, stepped on a rock that was inside a building, and immediately her ankle twisted, and she hit the ground. And so I get a phone call, and work says she's got to go to the ER, which is such a joy on Saturday night. And so we head to the ER in Asheville. I meet her over there. And, uh, and she is in pain. Her ankle is like twice the size it ought to be. It's swollen. She's in pain. Uh, do you know that I didn't say a lot? Like, it wasn't smart for me to talk. It wasn't hard to figure that out either. Like, my wife loves to talk. Like, she loves to tell stories, and she tells me every day about her day. She didn't care about her day. I just sat there. We were not in a room because the rooms were full, and so there's room 32, and then there's H32, Hall 32, we're in the H32 parallel parked up against the nurse's station. That's the spot we had. As we sat there, and I simply sat at the foot of her bed and held ice on her ankle so it wouldn't fall off, that's what I did. In that moment, silence was golden. The speech wasn't even silver, all right? It was way down on the list. Uh, it works both ways, but in the, cor- uh, the church at Corinth, the problem was in worship. Now, Paul gets stern, very stern at the end of this. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? You must realize this paragraph, 36 through 40, is summarizing three chapters. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. I want to pause there for a moment because the claim that Paul makes there is bold. And his bold claim is this letter that I'm writing to you is equal to the Old Testament. Testament. 
This is God's word. Wow. He says, this is a command from the Lord. What I'm writing to you is a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He says, if you do not believe that God has spoken through me to you, you are no longer part of God's family. That's how bold and brazen Paul gets at this point. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. Why? The context of Corinth demanded it. The church was young. The needs were great. The gospel needed to go out. How do we know? I want to read to you then what follows this, verses 1 through 4. And just just look up and listen to this. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, verses 1 through 4 of 15, of the gospel I preach to you. This is Paul's passion, is the gospel. And he's so concerned that the craziness and the confusion has overshadowed the gospel. He says, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. It is the gospel that saved you from your sins and it is the gospel that keeps on saving you. It isn't some whacked out video of the Nephilim in Ohio for Pete's sake. It isn't some conspiracy theory. It is the gospel. It isn't speaking in tongues. It isn't a revelation from the Lord. It isn't a song beautifully sung. It isn't all of the trappings that can come in worship. The lights, the scenery, the stage, all of the music. It isn't that, church. It is the gospel. Amen? It's the gospel that saved you. It's the gospel that keeps on saving you, Paul says. He says, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. You must hold fast to the word and don't get distracted by all of the other things that can distract you. I would just say to you this morning, I would plead with you and beg you to hold fast to the word. Look at this. Here's the word. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Aren't you glad? He died for us in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Paul? What scriptures? Paul, Isaiah 53, shortest chapter in Isaiah. Keep listening to me. Keep listening. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all sinners. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in the room. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all lost. We're all struggling to find our way. We have turned everyone to his own way. Don't just think, I accidentally got lost. No, 
you liked being lost before you were found. You enjoyed delighting in your sin. You enjoyed the sin of the old life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you love to sin. It feels good. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Oh, wow. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. Whatever sins you have committed, whatever you did, Brady and I talked about this this very week, just like I'm talking to all of you today, whatever you did, all your sins, when you lost your temper, when you committed adultery, when you had sex with your girlfriend, when you cheated on the midterm, when you took another drink that plunged you into another round of addiction. When Jesus Christ fell under the weight of the cross, that's what he was carrying. Take the guilt you feel for the worst thing you've ever done. Multiply it by all the sins you've ever committed. All the sins you've ever committed. By all the people in the world and all the sins they've ever committed. And put that on one man. His name is Jesus Christ. And he took that. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. He took that. Anything, church, that distracts us from that message has to go. That's Paul's point. Look at this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Are you ready for this? Silence is golden. Yet he opened not his mouth. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, no, no, I can't do this. No, I can't take this anymore. No, I didn't do these things. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Silence from Jesus for us. Golden. 
this morning, I would say to you that what Paul is attempting to do is what I've attempted to do. View this in context, but in the broader context of the gospel. I ask you this question this morning. Do you readily, wholeheartedly admit that you are a straying sheep lost in your sins? Do you know that your sin separates you from God eternally and that with it you will never enter his presence? Do you realize that the gospel, which means good news, begins with the bad news of you and me being full of sin and God being full of love? That he would take his only son and offer him up and lay over on Jesus all the sin you've ever committed. And when he did, that Jesus on the cross would take it, die, and extend 2,000 plus years later to every person in this room the opportunity to receive forgiveness for that sin and you be free from your sin. And that that same gospel not only saved you, many of you in the room, but still saves you today. That on your worst day, you can look to a cross and go, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. Chris, will you bring the words up to that? This is how we're going to end today. We're going to sing this. Don't need any accompaniment. You guys have beautiful voices. We're going to sing this. And I would say this, or Dave, you can play if you want. That's all right. I would say this, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, there are two ways you can respond today. One is, as we're singing, you can just come find me down front and you can trust Christ to forgive you of your sins. Secondly is when the service is over, you can come find me or anybody on the staff. If you came with a friend who knows Christ, I'll just tell him or tell her. They can help lead you to him. Let's stand, let's sing the words of this song. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven.
Let's sing that chorus one more time. Sing it out. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. That's beautiful. Sing it because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is in that good news. Because you died and rose again. Amazing love this is. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, that you, my King, would die for me? Sing it to Him. Amazing love. Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you. Amazing love, how can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor in all I do, I honor you. God, I pray that these people will go in peace. I pray that the reality of the gospel would not be just an historic event of the day or night of their salvation, but would be a present reality.